0: This is the History of the World podcast, with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 25, The Roman Kingdom. ancient cultures, whether it be the Greeks, the Jews, the Sumerians, or the Chinese, then it can be hard to distinguish truth from reality. Did the Trojan War really happen? Did Moses lead the Israelites from persecution? Was there really a king called Gilgamesh in Mesopotamia? Did the Tziah dynasty of China really exist. How much about the origin of ancient societies is true or not is difficult to be sure about, but this is because the stories are so fantastic. They often seem to give us an abstract version of events with great spiritual occurrences that sound quite unbelievable. Should a leader want to install some national pride into his people, such as when he's rallying them into battle or incentivizing them into working hard for the city's economy, he might pick one of these fantastic stories and educate his people into believing that story. The story may be true, or it may be fantasy. And if it is fantasy, then it may be based on something that really happened and simply glorified in order to inspire the minds of the people believing themselves to be descendants of the characters involved. Some leaders may claim that they are direct descendants of the heroes of these stories in order to entice their people to look at them with the same idolization. When talking about these stories, we are talking about a culture's mythology. And the Romans had their own mythology. In fact, the Romans would keep reinventing their mythology. Such was the power and significance of imperial Rome. We shouldn't be surprised to hear this when you consider that Rome's leadership was competitive and relied upon the loyalty of its subjects, especially as the empire of Rome grew to almost unimaginable proportions such were the efforts made in establishing rome as the most powerful entity that the world had ever seen that its existence resonated hugely in europe and beyond for many centuries to come especially when you look at the power of the byzantine empire and the holy roman empire whose cultural foundations find themselves traceable back to imperial rome however There was one early mythology about the foundation of Rome, which we still speak of today, and it is about a pair of twin boys. Romulus. It is inevitable that we are going to be continuously comparing Roman gods to Greek gods, and the reasons for this will become apparent as we walk through each episode. Firstly, the story of Romulus takes us back to the 8th century BCE, which is after the emergence of the first Olympic Games on the Peloponnese Peninsula of modern-day Greece. However, both the first Olympic Games and the story of Romulus are both written about retrospectively, so there were no contemporary writings to validate either thing. The story of Romulus claims that there was a Vestal Virgin called Rhea Silvia and that Rhea Silvia was impregnated by the Roman god Mars. Now if you listen to the podcast regularly then you will know that I never make a statement like that without dissecting it for comprehension. A Vestal Virgin is a woman who has taken a vow of chastity in honour of the Roman goddess of the home called Vesta, who herself was a virgin. The Roman god called Mars is the god of war. Rhea Silvia would give birth to two twin boys called Romulus and Remus. Rhea Silvia's uncle was called Amulius, and he was the king of a city called Alba Longa. Romulus and Remus were seen as a potential threat to his throne and so the two boys were abandoned on the banks of the river Tiber. The god of the Tiber River was Tiberinus and he rescued the two infant twin boys and placed them in the care of a she-wolf called Lupa, who brought them up as her own cubs. Many famous depictions of this episode in history are demonstrated by pictures and sculptures of the two boys being suckled by Lupa. The two boys would be adopted by a shepherd called Faustulus and they would indeed learn to be shepherds themselves. As young adults, they would become involved in a civil dispute and Remus was taken prisoner and escorted to Alba Longa. Romulus decided to free his brother, but during this time he would learn of his heritage and he would learn that he and Remus were the grandsons of King Anulius's brother, the former King Numitor, who Amulius had deposed. Romulus rescued Remus and they successfully reinstated their grandfather Numitor as the king. Romulus and Remus would then both attempt to build a new city, but the two brothers could not agree the location, and the result of the dispute was that Remus was killed, and that Romulus would found the city of Rome atop the Palatine Hill, the centremost of what would become the Seven Hills of Rome. This is just one of Rome's foundation stories and there are others but this is the one that has become famously fabled over time. The time of Romulus has been somewhat immortalised as the beginning of an important period of Roman history which is referred to as the Roman Kingdom and lasted from the beginning of Romulus's reign in 753 BCE through to 509 BCE. The main sources for writing the history of the Roman Kingdom exist in the writings from after the period of the Roman Kingdom. One person who gives us a story of the years of the Roman Kingdom, otherwise called the Regal Period of Rome, is the Roman historian Livy, whose full name is Titus Livius. And Livy was alive from the 1st century BCE through to the 1st century. And this was around 500 years after the end of the Regal period. So there will always be a degree of scepticism about this period of Rome's history being completely accurate. Nonetheless, we really don't have much else to go by as the archaeological evidence is scant and doesn't conclusively help us to realise the truth one way or the other. Etruscans We should note that the History of the World podcast has discussed the Italian peninsula previously during the history of its episodes, and that generally speaking we know that there was much in the way of Greek polis colonising the Italian peninsula, especially during the 7th century BCE and particularly in the south. However, the Greeks were also attempting to colonise the large islands of the western Mediterranean such as Corsica and Sicily and had even reached the south coast of France. It is also important to note that Punic seafarers had just established the North African colony of Carthage going into the 8th century BCE which is the supposed time of Romulus's establishment of the Roman kingdom we discussed the establishment of Carthage in episode 9 of volume 2 about the Phoenicians we have also mentioned a race of people called the Etruscans at various times during volumes 2 and 3 as a peoples who had settled the west coast of the northern portion of the Italian peninsula. Whether or not the Etruscans originated from local settlers already living in this part of Europe, there can be no doubt that they were heavily influenced by migrating Greeks. And we know this because the Etruscan script is an evolution of the Greek script, which in turn was an evolution of the Ugaritic script. We have suggested that the Etruscans were a Greek migration for this reason, but the 5th century BCE Greek historian Herodotus tells us that the Etruscans were established by an Anatolian migration. Another historian called Dionysius of Halicarnassus, who was a contemporary of Livy, tells us that the Etruscans originated right where they are traditionally found on the Italian peninsula. One very interesting aspect of the Etruscans is their language, which it has been concluded was not a member of the Indo-European language family. My opinion is that they were likely to be a local people, but that they were colonized and civilized by Greek peoples, possibly from Anatolia, but certainly bringing with them an alphabetic script and a naval ability which allowed the Etruscans to become a naval force in their own right. The Greeks were certainly very active colonisers of lands in and around the Tyrrhenian Sea during this period and there is more to point us towards a Greek cultural connection than a Punic cultural connection. And I can't imagine that the Etruscans would have suddenly become so culturally advanced without the influence of a rapidly advancing culture such as the Greeks, who were advancing rapidly due to an increased competitiveness for resources on their own peninsula. Some of Rome's kings are said to be Etruscan in origin and we'll take a closer look at that. However, in terms of Romulus founding Rome in 753 BCE and becoming the first king, archaeology in Rome tells us that a settlement existed here long before this year. Now strangely enough, when Rome became an empire, a Roman poet called Virgil wrote the Aeneid, which linked the mythological story of the Trojan War to the story of Romulus and Remus. And this was maybe in an attempt to add more depth to the story of the birth and bloodline of Rome. However, the city of Rome was actually built in an area which is much more closely linked to Etruscan culture than any other culture. Unfortunately, the intense building projects of Rome has historically added layer upon layer of construction on top of Rome's very earliest history. And this obscures the true archaeological truth about the origin of Rome and leaves us with the story of Romulus and Remus. The Seven Kings So we may as well tell the story of the Roman kingdom founded by the first of Seven Kings Romulus in 753 BCE. And without the presence of an alternative story of Rome's earliest years, we have to try to read this story with a very open mind. Even if you don't believe in the story of Romulus and Remus, you might still believe that Romulus lived. And you might believe him to be a Roman king. Different ethnicities are believed to have lived in and around the environs of the seven hills of Rome the latin tribe are believed to have migrated into the italian peninsula after the late bronze age collapse bringing their indo-european latin language with them the central lands of the italian peninsula were occupied by the umbri who some claimed to be celtic in origin and once again little is known about their origin the sabines were a tribe who came from the mountains to the north of Rome and to the east of the Tiber River. All of these tribes are believed to have existed in and around the early city of Rome. The Sabines are the subject for a very controversial episode of the reign of Romulus, when he was attempting to build a population from those varied immigrants into the city. The Latins and the Sabines were invited to a festival in the city but at a premeditated point in proceedings the signal was given to abduct the visiting fertile females in order for the residents of Rome to take them for their wives and procreate the next generation in a historical event dramatically named the Rape of the Sabine Women. The event is recreated in various dramatisations especially written in the classical era. The Sabines were furious with the Romans for their barefaced cheek but the kidnapped women appeared to have developed sentiments for both their Sabine families and their Roman husbands and they brought the two cultures together. We cannot be sure whether all the events that have been recorded have been recorded with accuracy especially when we talk of the attitudes and sentiments of everybody involved. So Romulus has actually come down to us as quite a complex character. On the one hand he was a heroic leader and the good guy of the story creating the city of Rome as an asylum for the outcasts of other societies of the northern Italian peninsula. However the complexity of his methods such as the rape of the Sabine women does not correlate with our modern concept of decent morality. So if the Romans throughout their existence wanted to source Romulus as their founding father then he could be equally celebrated as a saviour of a suppressed minority and the political hero or a ruler of outlaws and unwelcome scum of society who stooped to any low level to make his fortune. And it is this complexity that allows people to either celebrate or berate the Romans accordingly and Justifiably. Numa Pompilius. The second king of Rome was Numa Pompilius, who was a sabine man and was elected by the Roman Senate to be the next king after an interregnum following the death of Romulus. Numa Pompilius was described as much more of a placid ruler than Romulus before him. However, this is where we can maybe pick holes in the Roman kingdom story. Numa supposedly learned philosophy from Pythagoras. Now we learned of Pythagoras in episode 16 about classical Greek culture, and we learned that he was alive in the 6th century BCE. However, our Roman story hasn't even reached that century, with Numa becoming the Roman king towards the end of the 8th century BCE. So it is impossible for Numa to have been taught by Pythagoras when Numa was living in a completely different century. Numa is also attributed as the man who invented January and February and put them at the front of the Roman ten-month calendar. February was named after the instruments of purification, the Februa, used at the Roman festival of Lupercalia. January was named after the Roman god of time, Janus. Livy tells us that Numa Pompilius was the man who built the temple of Janus. So the legacy of Numa Pompilius is that of a pious king. Numa may have lived to be around 80 years old before passing away in the 670s BCE. Tullus Hostilius. The senate of the Roman kingdom elected Tullus Hostilius after the death of Numa Pompilius. In the story of Romulus and Remus, the two brothers fought to reinstate their grandfather as the king of Alba Longa. During the reign of Tullus Hostilius, Alba Longa was destroyed. We can't be sure exactly how it was destroyed and by who. It's possible that it was the Romans, but it could have also have been the Latins. If Rome was a product of the Kingdom of Alba Longa, then this could support the point of view that Roman destruction of Alba Longa was somewhat impious. However, there is the story of an important battle between an Alba family and a Roman family during this period which could have been related to this conclusive event However, it is also stated that the population of Alba Longa migrated to Rome, resulting in a significant expansion of the city. Tullus was regarded as more belligerent than his pious predecessor, much more like Romulus in his nature. However, despite being more inclined to do battle, Tullus was quite active in regard to the secular structure of the city, with the construction of Senate buildings such as the Comitium, where people gathered to vote. The Curia Hostilia was a converted temple that existed during the time of Romulus, but was rebuilt by Tullus and called the Curia Hostilia in honour of Tullus. The Curia Hostilia was the main Roman Senate house and remains of it can be found in Rome to this very day. If Numa Pompilius was a pious king, then Tullus Hostilius was not. Tullus Hostilius was succeeded by a man called Ancus Martius, and some attribute the death of Tullus Hostilius to Ancus Marcius, despite the fact that Ancus Marcius was elected as king by an assembly put together by a regent in the aftermath of the death of Tullus. Tullus's lack of piety may have led to his home being struck by lightning and burning to the ground with him and his family trapped inside. However, Ancus Martius has also been fingered for the death of Tullus Hostilius with a report of Ancus going round to Tullus's house with a gang slaughtering the Tullus family and burning his house down. Ancus Martius. Ancus Martius ruled in the second half of the seventh century BCE and he would act to reinstate the religious practices that had been instigated by Numa Pompilius and neglected by Tullus Hostilius. However Ancus's character was not similar to Numa. Even though he was respectful of religious observance, he was also up for the fight, like Tullus and Romulus. The one thing that is attributed to Ancus is the expansion of the city, which had become a city-state with an area of influence expanding beyond the city of Rome itself. The archaeological site of Ostia is an astonishingly large site that has been well preserved, and according to legend, it was the port settlement of the Romans built by Ancus Martius. The biggest challenge is the archaeological dating of the site because it points back to a time over 200 years after the supposed lifetime of Ancus Martius, with the earliest date being offered as the earliest years the 4th century BCE. The fact that Ancus supported the religious traditions of his grandfather Numa Pompilius brought him into a conflict with the Latins in a conflict which did not end well for the Latins with Latin settlements being destroyed by the Romans and the populations being moved into Roman controlled areas of the city state such as the Aventine Hill. (laughs) Lucius Tarquinius Priscus While Rome had been developing, so had the lands of the Etruscans. The Etruscan area of influence was as healthy as ever and had expanded to the areas around the city of Rome. Ancus Martius passed away, leaving two infant sons too young to rule. So an Etruscan man called Lucomo was declared the regent. Lucomo was the son of a Corinthian, and despite marrying an Etruscan noblewoman whose name incidentally was Tanaquil, he could never be accepted as a powerful Etruscan due to his paternal heritage. And therefore, he moved to Rome, where he would be able to attain a status that led to the regency after. He befriended Ancus Marcius and was entrusted to be the regent to Ancus's sons. Lucomo would change his name to Lucius Tarquinius Priscus and would become known to history as Tarquin the Elder. Tarquin the Elder didn't just accept the regency, but he took the throne and ruled as king against the wishes of the family of Ancus Marcius. Tarquin was ambitious and as king he was proactive. He strengthened the Roman army, bolstered the Roman senatorial ranks and planned a defensive wall for the city. But this plan was disrupted by the Sabines who attacked the city and prompted Tarquin to commission his army to which he had made considerable advances with the equestrian ranks which he believed were lacking. Tarquin is also credited with the encouragement of sporting competition within Rome, with an annual games taking place, including chariot racing and boxing. In fact, Tarquin is also named as the king who made the Circus Maximus, a great public stadium so that everybody in Rome could enjoy the drama of the chariot race up close. However, the past would catch up with Tarquin in 579 BCE, when a staged riot took place and Tarquin received a fatal blow to the head. The riot was staged by the sons of Ancus Martius, the ones who Tarquin had stolen the throne from when he was simply supposed to be the regent only. Some describe Tarquin the Elder as an Etruscan king, but it was actually his wife Tanaquil who was truly Etruscan and she was highly influential over who would take the Roman throne in the wake of the death of her husband. Servius Tullius It was not the forgotten sons of Ancus Martius who took the Roman throne back from the Etruscan immigrants. Nor was it the sons of Tarquin the Elder and his wife Tanaquil. In fact, it would be an Etruscan man championed by Tanaquil who would take the throne. And it would take four years for this to happen. An interregnum with interregis, or in other words, temporary kings was not in any way unusual and to some degree was expected while Rome would calculate who the best choice of replacement should be. In fact, Servius Tullius would not even get officially elected but would be instated by popular demand among the Romans leading the Senate who simply decided to make him the king. Why did Tanaquil seemingly pick a random Etruscan man To become the king over her own sons. Well this is because Tanaquil is described as a prophet. And as a prophet she prophesied that Servius Tullius. Who according to some legend was a slave of Tarquin the elder. Would become a great Roman king. Servius would even be allowed to marry the daughter of Tarquin the elder. Whose name was Tarquinia? Servius would actually finish that defensive wall that his father in law or master tried to build around the city of Rome. Servius would also be credited with the introduction of the Servian Constitution, which had important implications for the existence of the Roman kingdom itself. However, there are historians who believe that the Servian Constitution was a natural evolution of the Roman constitution in general, which Servius Tullius only played a part in its progress, which extended from before his reign and went on after his reign. In principle, it was not unlike the type of constitutional reforms conducted by Athens on its own people by attempting to categorise the demographical identities of the population and a portion the appropriate voting rights to them. The Roman population was separated into tribes and the tribes would submit an equal number of people to the Senate. So this describes a very similar type of constitution which existed in Greek polis such as Athens and Sparta but the power of the monarchs in Athens and Sparta was very much more diminished than we are used to seeing in other monarchies and this would prove to be important in Rome as well. However, the power of the vote in Rome was still heavily weighted towards its aristocratic or wealthiest classes, while the poorer classes had less influence. In return for voting rights, the population had to commit to military service. Lucius Tarquinius Superbus Servius Tullius had an enemy from within and he was likely to be a direct descendant of Tarquin the Elder and his name was Lucius Tarquinius Superbus. Known to history as Tarquin the Proud, he is thought to have been responsible for the death of his first wife and a husband of his second wife on his ascent to power. He usurped the throne of Rome by murdering Servius Tullius at the beginning of a reign of terror. Tarquin the Proud was responsible for the execution of a number of Roman senators while Tarquin attempted to rule Rome as an absolute despot. During the reign of the later kings the power of the Etruscans was still growing with Etruscan influence extending all around Rome and Rome would have surely been a city that the Etruscans would feel more comfortable about if all of its power was diminished. And this might explain Tarquin the Proud's behaviour as the descendant of an Etruscan noble family and a Corinthian immigrant into Etruria which was the name of the Etruscan lands. The nobleman Lucius Tarquinius Collatinus was married to an admired woman called Lucretia and Lucretia was raped by the son of Tarquin the Proud called Sextus Tarquinius. Lucretia committed suicide in shame and Tarquinius Collatinus's cousin would step up In his cousin's honour. His name was Lucius Junius Brutus. Brutus would gather all the young men of Rome and expel Tarquin the Proud's son from the Roman army's camp in an event which saw the Roman army turn against the king. As such the king could not re-enter the city and had to flee into exile. The Roman monarchy had been overthrown, and Tarquin the Proud did not want to surrender his power. However, he was unable to regain power, and decided to approach the Etruscan king of the city of Colusium, and in 508 BCE, King Lars Porsena of Colusium attempted to besiege Rome. The Etruscans got the better of the Romans on the field of battle to the west of the city but the Romans retreated back over the Tiber River and within their city walls preventing any further offensive from the Etruscans. Ultimately there was a peace treaty but this actually meant that the monarchy was now over. The Romans hadn't enjoyed the last 20 years under the rule of a despotic king and decided that future kings should have limited powers, not unlike the archons of Athens, for example. For all intents and purposes, Rome was now a republic. Collatinus, the husband of the tragic Lucretia, and his loyal cousin, Brutus, served as consuls during the first year. The story of the republic will continue next time. This week's episode is highly concerning however with all of these kings described as semi-mythological and many of the events skewed by dramatisations and depictions seeking to glorify them. However we could say similar things about a number of historical stories from the ancient era about every society as we are simply reiterating interpretations and in the light of multiple accounts the popular and most influential interpretation of the day. So although this week we have told a wonderful story of the Roman Kingdom, there is a possibility that none of it ever happened. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode, and I don't think there's any doubt about it. Uh, I feel like we've just started something big. We've just uh, we've just met a monster, haven't we? This Roman story is going to be huge and uh, very involved, so uh, it's good to start it, and now we walk together through the entire history of the Roman Kingdom, the Roman Republic, and the Roman Empire. Now, if you're a, an avid fan of the History of the World podcast, you can't get enough of it, you love every minute of it. Then why not show your appreciation by popping along to our Patreon site? So that's uh, at the history of the world Podcast.com website. There's a link. You can go to the Patreon site, and you can sign up to make a monthly donation to help us keep the podcast going. You can sign up for as little as one dollar a month, and when you do, uh, there are rewards that you can uh, that you can qualify for. But you also you also have the distinct honor of becoming a member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati. And we have some more members to welcome to the Illuminati this week. So let me introduce you to them. They are Willie Moller, Jim Trailer, Jeff Nye, Liz Bayer, and Erdi. You are all now lifelong members of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati, and your contributions are. Highly valued and uh, thank you so much. Now, if you can't commit to uh, a monthly donation, that's absolutely fine. and We totally understand. It's always going to be a free project. The world's a bit of a mess at the moment, so it's not everybody that can, uh, that can possibly commit to a financial contribution at the moment. And uh, what I would ask you to do, if you want to contribute, you still can you can rate and review the podcast and uh, that always helps that uh, helps to push us out to a uh, more uh, a more wider audience and subsequently there'll be more interest in the project and that in turn can, helps to keep it going too now then we've made a, a couple of changes to the podcast on a fundamental level now um not necessarily on the content that we're publishing but um the nature in which we publish it. So uh, we may not be uh, have all episodes available on all platforms at the moment that we certainly used to have. And um, if you're concerned in any way about the uh, the changes, if they've affected you in a negative way, I'm very interested in hearing about it. I'm always interested in hearing from all of the audience about anything, to be quite honest with you, but especially if you're having any issues with the podcast at the moment. Write in and let me know and I'll see if I can resolve it. And plus the other important thing is I do enjoy reading your messages out at the end of the show. Anyone that's listened to the show for some time will be fully aware of that. Well, next week we're going to be looking at the earliest years of the Roman Republic. Um, All the period before the Punic Wars started escalating and... uh, We'll inevitably be bumping into some uh, previous stories uh, when we reach that time, but um, obviously we've got a gap to fill. We need to know exactly what happened after Tarquin the Proud was deposed and there was a republic in Rome. What happened? Tune in next week to find out. Until then, be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.